Title of today's roundtable is U.S. Regulators Are Trying to Kill Crypto. But the original title before we change it was U.S. Regulators Are Fucking Crypto. And frankly, they are. We've seen a ton of companies moving offshore. Galaxy announcing today that they were doing so. The biggest market makers that we had in the space are gone, which means illiquid books, no volume, and $5 Bitcoin order sending price up $75,000 directly to a million Guys, it is a shit show in the United States. Is it over? Will we survive? I'm discussing with today's amazing panel. I've got Sid Powell, Scott Dykstra, and Joshua Frank from the Thai. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hang your head in shame on the like button if you are, in fact, unfortunate enough to be an American like me. I mean, I just told you all the bad things that are happening in the United States, and I failed to even mention that the IRS is jumping ahead of FTX's unsecured creditors for like $80 billion. What? I mean, the insanity in this country. Imagine you were really psyched. Hey, it's going great. I'm an FTX creditor. I'm going to get like 70% of my money back. And then the IRS comes and steps ahead and said, not you, us first. I would be surprised if I wasn't a Voyager creditor myself and had not been bent over this desk so many times that I can't even recall my bad news in the bankruptcy process. Proving that once again, not only is the United States trying to kill crypto, but they also just hate their citizens. They just hate us. They hate us. Bankruptcy, scam, scam, scam. So now that I've uh, laid that table for all my guests who now are probably ashamed to have joined us, I have Sid Powell, Scott Tartra, and Joshua Frank. So I got a good giggle out of you. We got two Scots in hats. That's a first on the show, guys. You're witnessing history here. Scott, it's your first time here. Welcome. Glad to be here, man. Appreciate you having me. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, how, how bad is this over here? I mean, it's I don't know. It's about to go viral, but we're about to see. Uh, it's so bad that Congressman Brad Sherman is just trying to blame crypto bros for all the U.S.'s failures this morning. You're about to see that all over the news. I mean. <laughs> So this is what he said. I don't have the quote in front of me. We should bring up the video, to be honest, but I wouldn't want your guys' eyes to burn out of your heads like the guy at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, We wouldn't want that. But he basically said crypto bros have printed money to make trillions. And they said, and the U.S. government also prints money, but it's cool guys. We're the U.S. government. We do it all the time, but we don't like it when crypto bros do it. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, okay, so, but that's worth talking about though, because let's be honest, I know nobody here really wants to talk about meme coins, but isn't he's missing the point with the United States government part? But crypto bros literally are printing money right now and making trillions, right? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, Tether I mean, like three trillion. So I don't know. Three trillion. You you've made three trillion, but thank you for showing up still. <laughs> Sid, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I think it's you know it's it's interesting that we saw um, Tether's latest report where they showed you know they were more profitable this past quarter than uh, than BlackRock was. Um, so if that doesn't show that this is a profitable business that people are willing to pay for, then I don't know what does. Um, at least that you know hopefully 
um, you know, provides some incentive for financial institutions to start banking and, and servicing the sector. Yeah, I mean, the numbers on Tether, I'm scrolling down, were absolutely absurd. I know I tweeted it yesterday, but they basically, I, I don't have the exact number, but 1.7-ish billion they made in the quarter and now have over mm-hmm. 2.5 billion above their reserves. Above their reserve, yeah. So Tether has kind of slowly dispelled all that FUD, right? And and my favorite thing is when I tweeted about their that. Your balance people, isn't U.S. dollar equivalents, though. I, oh, that, yeah, probably bit. in Chinese uh, commercial paper, if I've heard, if I, if the uh, well, there was a lot of current. gold and other things on the balance sheet that wasn't U.S. dollars, and I don't know personally if I was putting my money in a stablecoin, I still would like to see it. Like, just put it in treasuries. Like, you can get enough yield from treasuries. Like, why are you playing games? You don't need to be playing games. You're making. Are they so really much in gold? Money. I thought that they were in treasuries and cash at this point. Well, they had three, three billion of it. Was Mostly, gold. yeah, yeah. But three yeah, billion. Yeah, there's um. There's gold, there's some secured loans, but I mean, I would suspect that these secured loans are, you know, loans that are over collateralized with Bitcoin or something like that. Hmm. Interesting. So Josh, you're basically hinting, wink, wink, you'd still feel more comfortable with USDC. Look, it doesn't say, I'm not saying I'm uncomfortable with Tether. That's not the point I'm making. I'm just saying is you think they have so much AUM, they have, they're going to be printing so much money why not just keep it in cash equivalents? Especially, I mean, the, the, he, I, I sat yeah. down with Paolo uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and he was like, yeah, we're just killing it because treasuries are yielding so high. I mean, treasuries yeah. are performing better than whatever gold they're Here's holding. Scott, I'll, <laughs> I'll share it. Here you go. Hold up. Oh, I'm going to pull up a screen. One of the interesting on the things to think about this. is that we're venturing into new territory. What do you got there? I can't read that. Is it? Can you see it now? Oh wait, that's yes, the wrong. I kind of see hold it. Up. There we go. I got the right, right tab. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. So you can see, you know, three point four billion in precious metals, five billion in secured loans, two billion in other investments. You know, a billion and a half in Bitcoin. So sixty nine million billion, of course, because it's crypto, is in U.S. dollar equivalents, and the rest is 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 not. Um, I just I don't know why it would be so difficult just to put all of it in U.S. dollar equivalents. Yeah, that makes sense. But you need a hell of a bankrupt for this to be problematic at this point, at the very least, which I think is uh, is good. Uh, so we obviously talked a bit about the general situation, but let's get into some of these more specific things and how meaningful they are. It was Jump Crypto, and who was the other market maker that exited? Jane Jane Street, right? Jane Street and Jump Shop so, in the U.S. I mean, weren't they the ones basically making this market on the large exchanges? I got one, one, one thing to show you really quick on that, Scott, and then I'll, I'll let me know when it's ready so I don't put up more in peace again the, before we get to the other thing. <laughs> look at the hottest smart contract on Ethereum right now. Right now, this is over the last hour. So they pulled out of the U.S. Keep that in mind. They didn't pull out of crypto. So I think right. that's really important to note. These they're they are currently the hottest in terms of. The amount of activity that they're doing on chain over the last hour versus, you know, uh, an average of the last seven days, jump one of the jump wallets, the hottest smart contract right now. So they are still interacting in crypto on chain as as we speak. It's just out of the U.S. But keep in mind, they were out of the U.S. for a while. They were already moving offshore. This isn't like this isn't breaking news as in it happened a day ago. Bloomberg might have gotten the story a day ago, but a lot of these guys were already offshore. 
That, 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 that makes perfect sense. Uh, so then what does it exactly mean to say moving out of the United States? Is that simply like a new office address? Does it mean not making markets on Coinbase and Gemini? I mean, what does that really mean? I think it's, I, I don't know on the, on the making markets on U.S. exchanges or not. I'm not sure. But I do know that they're, they're going to be basically operating out of the other legal entities that they own, right? Everyone has a Cayman entity. A lot of these guys, like hmm. Galaxy had a Hong Kong desk already, right? Like Jump has a big Singaporean presence, right? So a lot of these guys have presences. Like Cumberland, which is DRW, primarily operates a lot of their crypto stuff out of London and has for years. So you know, this isn't necessarily new for a lot of these guys. Um, a lot of them are just forcing forcing people to 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 work offshore or move move offshore, which means no taxes uh, to the U.S., which is you know fantastic for us as as uh, U.S. citizens or residents. Uh, you know that. Yeah, that. Well, we need more taxes, but I mean, it feels like a lot of this yeah. is sort of just political theater, right? I mean, Coinbase is not. Uh, pulling their operations in the United States anymore, even if they open an exchange in Bermuda or if, if Brian moves his address. And these companies, as you said, are still operating here. Galaxy now moving, quote unquote, offshore. But so is this then, I guess, just all of them saying, see, told you so to regulators will move like calling their bluff to some degree. And then if so, does that mean that this isn't uh, really that meaningful? I mean, everyone has to consider it right now. It's an absolute witch hunt. So I, I, I agree it's political theater, but I also see it actually moving. Like I, operations, you're right. Coinbase isn't going to move 4,000 employees out of the U.S. Right. Engineering is in the U.S. Marketing, U.S. But like the, the, the feeling right now is that U.S. regulators are coming after the, the company, not just the, pe- the Pepe meme coin makers. They're going after just like normal businesses that were already approved by the SEC seven fucking years ago. And uh, it makes me want to move to Aruba too. Yeah, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. My island on. My palm tree on. (laughs) I think if you have, um, I mean, you've got the market makers and the trading firms kind of moving offshore. I mean, this just kind of brings it into line with a lot of projects. Like you might have some core contributors to to DeFi teams and, and NFT and gaming teams based on shore but now you know all the foundations uh are out of cayman the token issuers are out of bvi or bermuda or some other jurisdiction that has sort of done the work to set up a framework for teams to operate safely i think the thing that scares me is that this is the prop trading firms that are now doing this, right? The prop trading firms, because they're prop, and for anybody who doesn't know what that means, that's listening, it means they're proprietary, it means it's their own money, they're not taking money from external LPs, right, or external investors. These guys, because they're proprietary, they don't deal with external money, they don't have the reputation, like if they lose money, it's their own money, they don't care, it's not external capital, there's not that reputational risk. The fact that these guys are shitting their pants a little bit is bad, really bad, because that means that for, for funds that have, outside capital, right? All these hedge funds, all these asset managers, these large institutions that we spoke about moving into crypto. If the if the prop trading firms, which are the most flexible that have been in crypto for years are now getting scared, right? Imagine how the traditional funds feel, right? And so it is, it is a bad thing. Don't get me wrong. I think the prop trading firms that were profitable, that were making money in crypto, that went heavy into crypto will continue to do crypto. They'll just do it with, with outside, you know, uh, through, through other legal entities. But I think your U.S.-based hedge funds, you know, think about a $50 billion fund, you know, any any $50 billion fund, right? 
they're currently managing $50 billion. They're taking a billion dollars a year in management fees on 2%, right? It's not worth any sort of risk for them to get into crypto right now with 100, 200, 300 million dollars. It's just a giant reputational risk. They're putting themselves in the crosshairs of regulators. It's just not worth it, right? So I think like all these hmm. prop trading firms will continue to do business. You know, a lot of them already had offshore entities. They'll do a business offshore. My bigger concern is this just makes institutional adoption, you know, just pushes it out basically, you know, at minimum until the next election cycle. So you're saying the Harvard endowment doesn't want to throw all of their money into Pepe right now. Well, the Harvard endowment is prop well, the actually. Next- it's their own money. So that, that might be a little bit different, but um, they, they, I, some of those allocators are still actually allocating into crypto. They're still investing in funds, uh, but it's certainly slowing. But a lot of those guys that have committed, what I'm suggesting more of is, is, you know, your black stones of the world aren't coming in and launching crypto funds next week. Right. I mean, that's not, you know, and, and I'm not saying them individually, but there's not going to be a huge push in, 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 in that area to move into crypto, which is something that we started to move towards. You know, if, if you remember, you know, with Paul Tudor Jones coming into crypto in 20, in 2020, that kind of spurred this last bull market, right? You know, obviously Sailor came in and spent every penny he had and everyone else's pennies buying Bitcoin, which helped, but like, that's, that's really what kind of started this, right? And then you saw there, there are a lot of institutions that have come in that have adopted it. We thought that number would increase more, but this is really just sucking the air out of that from happening. Yeah. But, we're but to, to, to that point, Josh, like don't most of those, you know, the $50 billion funds also have like a lot of offshore structures. Like it's, it's pretty trivial for them to replicate what we're seeing with, you know, Galaxy and Jane Street and Jump. Um, but I do take your point that I think there's a lot of contingent liability because even though they were trading their own balance sheets, you can see there's probably a lot of, um, you know, I don't know, there's probably like class action lawsuits looming on the horizon for, you know, some, some of the um, some of the activity by those guys in Luna, for example. And I imagine that by offshoring, they can kind of hive off that risk, keep it in a separate subsidiary uh, or a structure where they can kind of insulate themselves from that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I certainly these guys have offshore entities, and a lot of them are trading crypto with offshore entities already. So I'm not. My point isn't that there there are top fifty, top twenty hedge funds that are trading crypto today actively, and some of them mm-hmm. are even trading fifty tokens. There's a small number, but some of them are. But the number of new entrants is just flat. It's are they not, trading Pepe? Um, I don't know if any. I don't. There are actually a few that we probably mutually know that probably are trading Pepe. Uh, yeah, you go to the volume and to the liquidity, right? I mean, as sad as it is, uh, that's where uh, it became a billion market cap coin. Plus, I'm sure that quite a few of them uh, made profits, just like I'm sure quite a few people we all know uh, made quite a bit and made us feel pretty bad uh, about our lives and our choices. Not me, <laughs> you guys, probably, right? <laughs> so, listen, but uh, so let, let's talk about a bit more positivity. What would be actually a good scenario out of all of what's happening with this regulatory nonsense in the United States, right? I mean, we've seen that the Lummis Gillibrand bill is likely to be reproposed uh, in the coming months. They've said it's going to be leaner and meaner. I mean, would some sensible stablecoin regulation get us partway there? I, I do feel like a lot of this is still just rhetoric and that it's still not in the interest of the United States to just kill it. I mean, I was pretty shocked when I saw the Joe Biden tweet like two days ago that said, literally like comparing what the Republicans want to do to crypto bros violating tax loopholes. 
like as if every wealthy person in the world is not utilizing the same tax loopholes in the United States. The rhetoric is crazy right now. But Biden's going to die like next week anyways. So, I mean, I'm just saying, what's the what's the good scenario here? If there's any silver lining, it's that like what we're seeing at space and time is a number of like financial institutions, uh, major U.S. banks that are coming in and they're building their own chains. Uh, they're building private ledgers. They're building like a U.S. Web3, which is totally different, a complete bifurcation of the public Web3 we're used to, of the, the Pepe on ETH. Like, this is this is something completely different that we, we haven't seen before. These, these networks that are forming on private ledgers that we've been hearing about behind the scenes for like four or five years, but it's finally all coming together. So U.S. is basically just building their own Web3. They're just building their own private ledgers for all the banks to finally bring it. And then that's going to come to uh, to retail eventually, right? When these crazy like Greenfield hey, I'm a major bank, I'm going to build a blockchain, comes to retail in like two years, we're just going to have a US Web3 that's just completely different than the Web3 of the rest of the world running is out it, of Ethereum. Scott, is that is that the Canton chain you're talking about? That that demo-based Canton one? Canton is just one of them, right? Canton runs on, yeah. on Azure's uh, confidential compute framework, right? Confidential compute framework. Uh, between it's, it's sharing assets between banks, but there's also banks building public-facing retail chains as well that'll probably come to light in two years or three years whenever these crazy greenfield projects form. What I'm saying, Scott, is like we're going to get a new blockchain, a U.S. blockchain or some shit that's completely outside of like Pepe on ETH. So, I mean, that so that kind of leads us to the like in it for the tech, right? Because that doesn't help anyone's yes. coins or investments or a lot of the things yeah. they believe in. And I this goes back to... I mean, after FTX collapsed, I sent some angry tweet that said, watch, Wall Street's going to come in and buy up our entire industry for pennies on the dollar. Like, watch. So that's not necessarily what's coming. But what you're saying is effectively that they'll build their own rails. They'll keep it closed off. It'll be using the technology, but against the entire ethos of all the things we believe in. And they'll just use it. No, I'm saying saying they're going to keep it closed off today. In two years, that's going to come to retail. They're going to build all these public chains that are like the U.S.'s attempt to build our own. I'm not even talking about CBDC, right? Everyone's going to say, right. oh, Scott, you're talking about a CBDC. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about a single financial institution who has retail clients all over the U.S. selling like their own chain as like their private ledger, which is effectively like Coinbase's base, except base went public right away. Like taking transactions. I, I- That's, that sounds like the uh, sounds like the, the information highway superhighway theory back in the 90s though scott where it was like cable like we're not going to have an open internet we'll just have cable companies provide everyone with internet through their television sets and um i don't know it's, it's just like it strikes me as it's a really hard engineering problem i just don't think the financial institutions can do it uh i don't think like i, I think they'll net be losers of customers who kind of debank themselves or go to you know self-custody solutions let me ask you something Let's throw out a random bank. Let's say uh, Wells Fargo. I have no affiliation. If Wells Fargo had their own chain, which would be absolutely insane, it'd be kind of batshit. Sid, would that make you feel more comfortable or less comfortable about Wells Fargo? I, I have no strong feelings about Wells Fargo either way. Like, I don't, like, I, I think, I, I just don't think it'll get the distribution of the scale. Like, I think they will struggle with the engineering problem of it. We have, um, 
as a proof point in Australia, the um, the stock exchange went through its own private blockchain uh, project and then ended up just writing off the entire thing. So I think Wells Fargo's would get written off well before it ever actually reaches retail you consumption. Think, you don't think these firms will wisen up and bring in like a space in time or a maple to help them? Correct. I, I don't think so. Like you're you're talking you're talking about the innovators dilemma at a firm that is not set up to incubate new technology. Like it's it's like saying that you know, uh, General Motors was going to you know successfully throw a bunch of balance sheet at producing its own electric car and and take out Tesla. Like there is marketing, board decision making. You know, every the average age of Wells Fargo board is probably above sixty five at this stage. How are they like they they don't even believe blockchain's a thing, let alone producing their own. I think it's also important to note that it's not the blockchain itself. It's also what's built on top of it, right? We have to talk about, well, what are the use cases? You know, you know, anybody yeah. can fork Ethereum and have their own blockchain tomorrow, right? So it's, is there anything actually built on it? Is anybody using it, right? I think, you know, and I know Scott and I agree on this. Like, Scott, you know, what is the number one killer use case of crypto right now? Stable coins. Right, stable coins. Yeah. No, it's stable coins, right? And stable and coins stable built coins, on Pepe, built on ETH. But yes, yeah, global. Coins. That's a global thing, right? That's the fact that anywhere, anybody, anywhere in the world has access to a U.S. dollar equivalent, right? In places that have incredibly high inflation, right, and can trans transact and can transfer that money incredibly inexpensively and incredibly fast, right? That actually solves a real world use case. Having a private blockchain operated by a, a major bank doesn't solve for that. I'm sure they can be like, you know what? Let's charge you know, 7% foreign transaction fee because you're sending to a non-US wallet. Uh, and by the way, let's send that money, let's send that transaction to every single regulatory body anywhere in the world, right? Let's broadcast that transaction. I don't think that that's what, you know, folks that are actually using crypto today, and there are some, there's not a lot. I, I, mm. I'm not saying there's a lot, but that's not what those people are using it for. They're using it to, you know, if you live in Venezuela, yeah, if you live yeah, in... Yeah. In, in any country that suffers from high inflation, or if you're a foreign domestic worker in a different country, right? And you have to go to Western Union and spend three or four yeah. percent with the material amount of money to send money home. Blockchain like that doesn't solve that problem. These these won't be speculation chains, speculators chains. These will be Venmo wire transfer chains. Like I'm gonna Venmo Josh in Venezuela through this chain, which I, I don't know if that sounds that doesn't sound fun. But that I, might be helpful. I, I hate to say this, but you know what really solves that? Stable coins might be the killer use case, but stable coins on Tron. Yeah, forty billion dollars worth of stable coins deployed on Tron. Right shocked, now. shocked. And no, I mean, I think it's like the most underreported, uh, hidden under the carpet stat that we have in crypto is that the majority of stable coins are sent fast and cheap on Tron. Yeah, J Justin's just yeah, out in the islands, just like the mayor of Serranum Island, just chilling, raking it he's in. That, he, I think he the, actually uh, got that ambassadorship pulled and didn't denounce it, is what uh, I heard. But yeah, <laughs> but I mean that's crazy. It's funny, I, w I was at an event and I met a guy who was building a. It was like a stablecoin bridge between Tron, and I'd never heard of it, but he showed me the volume that it's done. And to your guys' point, it, it was incredible. Like it was eye popping volume in stablecoin bridging there. It's crazy. If you look at uh, most centralized exchanges now, certainly offshore ones, because anything not in the United States is offshore by definition because we run the world. Um, but if you look, the now default option for sending a stablecoin is TRX. You have to actually toggle generally off of TRX to ETH to, to choose that chain because 
ETH fees are relatively high. So I'm assuming the exchanges want to push you towards the cheaper one. But more interestingly, and Josh, we've discussed this before, but what you just described that we agree upon about stable coins, that was supposed to be the thing that Bitcoin fixed, right? Was a solve for hyperinflation, low fees, remittances in El Salvador, all of these things. And now, like, you can't even send Bitcoin for less than 40 bucks a transaction because of ordinals and BRC20. And by the way, apparently now a sailor likes ordinals. I don't know if you saw that. Is he going to sell all his Bitcoin and buy ordinals with it? I don't know, man. But like, so are we back to like, really, like our only major use case is cheap and fast stable coins. And therefore, the United States government should just give us some stable coin regulation and well, we move Scott, on. Scott, something I'd like you to speak about is I know you guys had that booth with Shrapnel at Consensus, and I think gaming is a really, you know, one that of the booth was sweet. That was the one across from the tie that was like, oh, uh, I played that game. That was awesome. We just did that, Josh, just to fuck up your booth. I know you totally <laughs> did. My booth was my booth was like so <laughs> hidden in the corner, and then you guys were all over the place. But the coin desk folks told us we're across the street from the ties. So we said, "All right, we're, we're building." Have you the famous meme where it's like people are at a party and there's a guy in the corner who's like, "They don't know about like hyperinflation yeah, yeah. in Venezuela." <laughs> oh, gosh. At the time, the only they knew about my data on on Tron. <laughs> but seriously, go ahead, talk about it because yeah, it's I a mean, legitimate sure. question. Okay, so we've had years now of like shit games on chain that no one wants to play that were pure speculation, you know, literally dookie games. Uh, and then meanwhile, there's been like four, five, six major games that have been incubated with a lot of VC money. They're actually decent, surprisingly good, surprisingly fun games, like uh, more than just like a Call of Duty knockoff, like actually a decent game to play. Got a lot of data. They got a lot of users that are kind of about to onboard. Do, do I think these games are going to eclipse like Activision Blizzard or Eclipse Riot or Eclipse Epic? I don't know. But they don't need to. They don't need to. And I think they're going to get a massive market of gamers like the 24-year-olds that were trading Pepe and just made $2 million bucks are now going to buy hundred grand worth of weapons on Shrapnel on-chain on some Avalanche subnet, I guess. So so like you, 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 you take that and then you see this world where like – think about like, like – web two games like roblox that have their own in-game market and they're doing like billions on some stripe payments backbone or something what if that backbone of a video game was one of these u.s banks or or mastercards or wells fargo's future chains i don't know maybe that's good for the u.s you guys see the what if, it, what if it's go ahead stripe stripes come into the space doing doing their own on-ramp so chances are it'll probably still be uh stripe crypto so what we did at Consensus, Space and Time built this crazy-ass booth with Shrapnel, demoed the game, showed everyone how epic it is. Space and Time's managing all their data and just showing all these crazy visualizations of what's happening on-chain versus in-game. Players like buying NFTs and that converting to a weapon. We're just trying to show, like, hey, there's data that's coming from these games about, like, NFT transfers of, of like, 24-year-old Pepe traders buying Shrapnel weapons afterwards and, like, there's activity. It's happening. Crypto's not dead. Web3 Gaming's not dead. It's, a, it's actually about to launch. We're about to see over the next year, like four or five major AAA games that raise like $100 million of VC finally launching and garnering like this massive cult following of 24-year-olds that love to shoot shit. Are either of them called Alluvium or Star Atlas? Because I own a whole lot of those tokens. Alluvium, Wildcard, 99.9%. Dead Drop, all the fun ones. So you think that we will legitimately see AAA game? I mean, I did mess with Shrapnel. It was really cool. 
So you think that uh, these are going to be legit games that people maybe even outside of crypto will play, and this will be sort of the bridge? Because I've had my doubts. Outside of right? crypto. <laughs> no, I'm saying, do you think it can bring in the Call of Duty people and the uh, Fortnite people? They're good enough games for that. I think so. Yeah. Cool. Now, that's awesome. Do you, do you think the games kind of default to the um, like lower fidelity ones, like more like 2D Tetris. style games? Uh, it's just going to be like AAA on the con- on the on the console or on the computer versus like mobile games, right? That's the future. It's a complete bifurcation. It's either mobile yeah. or it's just fully like full first person shooter, Unreal Engine. But like, but Scott, yes, these games rock. Yes, these games are going to onboard like maybe the best ones, a couple million users. It's a lot. But that, but the 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 market. Uh, the transaction fees that that brings to whatever chain they run on are still nothing compared oh, to nothing. us and in Geneva on his Tron bridge. Yeah, I mean, that's true. If they do it on fast and cheap, it doesn't bring that much. But maybe, I mean, I guess the silver lining I mean, there is to find amazing. the rest of the ecosystem and start to care and it drives them to other places. I mean, which anecdotally, like people can say whatever they want, but Doge has probably brought more people to Bitcoin than Bitcoin Maxis have brought people to Bitcoin. Not a lot of Elon tweets. That 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 probably made the biggest difference. Yeah, which uh, one way or another. But it's funny. I don't know if you guys saw. Like it wasn't that long ago. Maybe last month. I'm trying to find the article. Yeah, that hundreds of Roblox users may be engaged in money laundering court filing claims. So Roblox is actually being yeah, yeah. aggressively used for money laundering. But I don't yeah. hear Brad Sherman out on a rant against Roblox. Yeah, you got like dangerous organizations playing Roblox games to like cash out. <laughs> oh, so that's great. So now that's like nice. gaming and crypto is going to bring us a whole other, uh, you know, it's going to become the new Silk Road. Awesome. But Sid, I mean, you guys are building quite a few things that are going to bridge this to the real world, right? Anyone who didn't listen, Sid and I did a podcast uh, maybe in the, within the last three weeks uh, and went deeply into this. But you obviously have some, serious optimism uh, about what's being built here and that we can sort of bridge it to the mainstream regulation aside, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're seeing, I mean, you know, uh, to, to the point Josh raised before, like, you know, stable coins are, are an example of real world asset where it's effectively a tokenized bank deposit or a tokenized T-bill um, holding. And what we've, what we've built um, and what we're launching in the next week is this cash management product, which is, you know, we lend to an SPV, the SPV buys T-bills, pledges them as collateral for the loan. So it's kind of like a tokenized repo. But when you look at how repos and these kind of instruments are limited in traditional finance, they can only, you know, they only settle at the end of the day. They only trade during US banking hours. So when you put this thing on a blockchain, you free up after hours liquidity and settlement in minutes. So it's like, you know, it's it's a nascent small space at the moment, you know, that type of product, tokenized T-bills, tokenized repos. But I think over time, that's going to expand significantly. What organization wouldn't want the ability to get, you know, overnight interest rates after hours or on weekends and um, and banking holidays? Do you think that uh, that could actually see interest from the big banks and these companies. And I mean, Scott, you talked about them building obviously their own blockchain. So something like this would be extremely interesting and that could actually help us in the uh, 
sort of fight here against regulators and legislators. I mean, isn't that, that would be the way to backdoor this, right? Is if the institutions actually really start adopting it and then they're in bed with the legislators anyways. I hope it backdoors it. And I think everyone has this optimist, maybe, (laughs) maybe unnecessary optimistic feeling that like, a new regime in the U.S. in a year and a half flips things around. Life goes back to normal. Meanwhile, these major financial institutions also release their public chains, and maybe business is booming. Well, I think you know nothing. Nothing's going to drive um, action like the profit motive, right? And so, you know, we we talked about the Tether report before, but if I'm a financial institution, nothing is going to be more enticing than seeing that some other company made a billion dollars in a quarter of profit just from holding, you know, holding cash and issuing a token against that, that they didn't have to pay interest on. I mean, that's the banking business model. Like we actually saw a lot of banks um, suffer because they were paying too much out on deposits and like Silicon Valley bank, you know, then get put, got pushed into uh, longer dated bonds to try and earn interest because they had to pay out this amount, you know, like this whopping interest rate to keep depositors there. Um, but if you're running a stablecoin business, it's the inverse of that. You pay nothing to your depositors. Right. It's like it's it's a negative working capital business. Right. So this actually makes a lot of sense. Right. It's a, and it's to anyone who's been here, you can scream from the top of the mountaintop about all of these incredible use cases and reasons that we should be tokenizing or financializing uh, these people's assets. But it just seems like the regulators and legislators, at least this this uh, particular regime, they just don't want to hear it. Which to me just means they're taking money from the banks, let's be honest, right? I mean, Yeah, but it's interesting, like uh, being at a couple of conferences these past two weeks, what I heard was how keen, you know, banks are now they feel like they've got the green light in regions like Hong Kong, for example, to come and start offering these types of services. So it's just, um, you just see regulatory competition between jurisdictions where if a bank can offer you know, if a bank in Hong Kong can offer services to crypto companies and start issuing its own stablecoin, you know, quickly it's going to induce other banks in other jurisdictions to lobby for those privileges. Hmm. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Stablecoins. It always comes back to stablecoins. I do think that we're going to get stablecoin regulation or, or legislation. Does, does it, Josh, am I crazy? I think that I think well, that's I mean, low hanging fruit, and that that would that's what we might we, get we at some see, point. We did see Hester Pierce um, last week in London make a comment that she liked the Mika regulation that the EU had uh, passed, and was interested in in looking at similar regulation in the U.S. So I think it's definitely a conversation. I, you know, I, it's definitely a subject of conversation. And I think if uh, Gensler gets his way, he'll just unilaterally pass it. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, but it doesn't seem like anyone's stopping Gensler right now. I mean, no, did you see? Did you see the whole the Democrat uh, meeting notes for for the the hearing uh, today? Yeah, they just, yeah, they literally no, they every Democrat with a document that said, "Here's what you're allowed to say about crypto," and make sure that you confirm that Gary Gensler has power to regulate all of it. That's literally like released meeting notes for anybody who didn't see this. Before a meeting, they were like, I don't care what you think. This is what you're going to say. But interestingly, I want to say, yeah, I nice. talked to uh, Pascal from uh, from Ledger, the CEO of Ledger, yesterday for a podcast. It's going to come yeah. out. Uh, it's going to come out next week. 
And he said that he's in Washington right now. I was like, are you in Paris right now? He's like, no, I'm in Washington. And I was like, how's that going? He was like, it's actually amazing. He said behind closed doors that a lot of these legislators are actually willing to listen. They're kind of well-educated on it. And then it just seems like you can only say what you can say publicly, but that they're actually listening privately. So as another silver lining, he gave me actually quite a bit of hope that there's people in government who get this and who want to see it move forward. Now, the caveat is he might have just been meeting with like Wharton Davidson and like the three other guys who we already know love it. But he had a lot at least of encouraging. Huh? That's at least encouraging. I found it very surprising. Josh, you'll like this. Something else just completely pivoting. He said that um, they've now started indexing. You know, we've obviously, speaking of correlations, and you're a data guy, we've seen a decreasing correlation of Bitcoin to the NASDAQ, obviously, and an increased correlation with gold. He said when you bundle the price of Bitcoin with the sales of custody wallets, of their wallets, like during SVB, FTX, things like that, that it's almost like 100% correlated to gold when you combine sales of self-custody devices and the price of Bitcoin, which I found incredibly insightful and interesting. And I just, now you guys don't need to watch the podcast. You guys should just ignore it when it comes out next week. But I, I found that extremely, extremely uh, compelling because we do have this sort of prevailing narrative still, I think, that Bitcoin is just a risk-off asset and that it's going to do whatever the NASDAQ does. But I don't know Bitcoin's if that's Bitcoin's correlation with gold is actually decreasing again. Like this week? Give me now, some it, time frame. What, what offsets it? Does it go does it go does the correlation with the NASDAQ increase when that happens? I see you've got your screen here. Ready? There we go. So I mean 30, 60, 90, you know, one year, three year. I mean, correlation is, is very low with, with that's gold. not what I had read, man. That's how, how would there even be enough data on self-custody wallets to ever Oh, that's NASDAQ. What this about is gold? NASDAQ. That's NASDAQ. Yeah, that's not even correlated. That's what I like. Give me that. Well, the S&P and NASDAQ over the last year have been significantly more correlated to gold. I mean, 0.5 numbers NASDAQ, actually gold is 0.167. That's and really low, too, though. It's way lower. Gold's correlation over every time interval is lower at this point than uh, the NASDAQs, at the least. Do you think that, I mean, going by what Pascal said, and I can't obviously like vet that data, but I mean, do you think that we are seeing a real move towards self custody uh, in, in, is that, I mean, I'm assuming that's just crypto natives. I but. think, I mean, I think if, if the IRS gets in front of the line as a creditor, <laughs> every single crypto native person is going to be, I am not putting my money anywhere in, unless it's on my own hardware wallet. Go ahead, I Scott. I, I, I see the opposite happening. You, Josh, like what you said logically makes sense. That's what you think would happen. Like that's what should happen, right? Like, I should be going and buying a, a hardware wallet and moving everything. But like, I think the opposite's occurring. As better user experiences, more options for for custodial, more like 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 Fidelity allowing me to invest my 401k in Bitcoin now and like hold Bitcoin in my Fidelity account. I just think the retail just goes like, sim- I like whatever, retail whatever path is simplest. I didn't say retail. Path, like I think retail just does the is, is the laziest shit ever. And buying a hardware wallet and configuring it is like I wasn't I wasn't referring to retail. retail person's willing to do. I see a correlation in the opposite direction. No, no, I wasn't referring to retail. I was saying if you had 
like if you are a creditor to to FTX and you are owed money because you had capital on FTX and all of a sudden the IRS comes in and takes that money in front of you, you're going to be like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm not keeping my money on an exchange again. Right. What does that have to do with the correlation between gold and self-custody? Nothing. This is a different conversation. We've, we've moved on. We've moved on, Scott. <laughs> Keep up. How do you I, I agree, with, I, agree with you. I just don't see a correlation. I'm coming back. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think, Scott, like anecdotally, what you're saying is absolutely true, especially new. I, I think you have to sort of bifurcate the extreme crypto native believers and anyone else who's coming in for all of these other use cases. If you're coming in through robots, Pepe or you're coming in through gaming, you're coming in through NFT, you're going for UX UI, right? It takes a long time for people to get the self-custody memo. But I do think that as self-custody does become easier and we abstract away the keys and all those things, and as you increasingly are able to True. interact from True. your own custodial wallet. Like True. if you can do everything right. that you can do on a centralized exchange in DeFi with like a robust order book and just sign it on your device, that could, I think, get us much more further in that direction. Right now, it's just not there. You got it. So, so, Wait, so I, the answer is this. It's not, it's not going to be hardware wallets. It's going to be Venmo-like apps that let you self-custody, let you log in with like your fucking Facebook login. Yep. and self-custody on a Venmo-like app, but it, it will certainly not be hardware wallets. You, you just said it correctly. I, I I disagree. I, th I think you're going to end up at like a quasi, you know, like a hybrid of it. I mean, already we're using, at Maple, we just started using Credo for this new pool we launched. They're awesome. And we use, yeah, we use, we use an MPC, but there's a key held, you know, securely on my phone. So it's like a hybrid. It's, you know, I, I'm not logging in anywhere with my email. That's too unsecure. But uh, I think you'll see this like 2FA on people's phones and, um, you know, with like the Solana, the Saga mobile as well. I think you'll increasingly see hardware devices blended into like things that we carry every day, whether it's your Apple Watch sure. or your iPhone or something like that. Doesn't yeah, necessarily yeah, mean you're going to have to whip out and do the pin on a ledger. That's the bet that Ledger's stars. making with stacks. I mean, Ledger, I don't know yeah. who's seen stacks, but it comes out in June, but they're literally stackable. So you can have your wallet that you carry around to show off your NFTs yeah. or a thousand bucks here, but then your real self custody. And they stack up and have this sort of incredible rounded screen. So, I mean, they're trying to make really the cool. iPod for self custody, right? So maybe there does become a device, but I think, Scott, to your point, or Sid, to your point, more likely it becomes something that's integrated into. Fair. The iPhone, right? Yeah. But uh, see, I want actually, so I, honestly, the three booths that I spent the most time at in consensus were playing that game, Shrapnel. So your booth, I didn't even know that. I mean, I was just hanging out with Josh the entire time. So I basically like was paying rent at the tie. And then Credo's booth, because like I did a mm -hmm. full walkthrough with their team and, and met them and then just started hanging out and it was cool. So uh, Sid, can you talk a bit more about that technology and how that actually is changing things? Because I thought that was incredibly cool, a uh, novel solution for self-custody. Yeah, uh, Credo is great. It's a, um, so it's a self-custody self MPC solution that is, you know, enterprise grade. So we use it to secure um, a new pool that we set up. So for cash management pool, it's going to be uh, secured by a Credo MPC. Um, you can manage it on your mobile. So you, you know, if you want to approve a transfer or whitelist an address, um, you can you can configure it to do a two of three, four of seven um, type approval. And every time one of those transactions goes through, uh, the people the people who need to sign and approve it will get a notification on their mobile to do so. So for us, we, you know, 
different from a Gnosis, for example, where when I'm using a Gnosis multi-sig, I'll connect a, a hardware device and have to use the pin on the hardware device. This is much easier just being able to use, you know, use my phone to approve it. So I think it's great technology that Credo's, um, Credo's put together. And we see a lot more clients now using this too. So whether they're lending or depositing into a maple pool or borrowers who are drawing down loans, um, I think, you know, I think this self-custody self and MPC technology is the future for institutional adoption of crypto. Right. So do we think that your everyday user who comes in, assuming these products get enough visibility that that process you just described or the evolution of it becomes simple enough that like, I just do that when I want to interact with DeFi, buy meme coins, uh, buy NFTs, all this stuff, because I mean, that, that could be the answer right there. It, it's pretty, yeah, because the, the user experience is converging to what you do when you want to log into, you know, GitHub or your Google account. You have like an authenticator app where you input a yep. pin to open it up and then you punch in a bunch of numbers that, that you know, qualify as 2FA authentication. Um, so, you know, and, and you, you're always carrying around your phone with you. So it's just converged the, the user experience of using crypto with the user experience of using any other number of apps, including, you know, Google, which now powers most of our lives these days. So I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a big step up in, in UX. And I think as well, the convention, every, everybody says, well, my grandma's not going to do this, but what, what happens instead is that you get used to it and then you get older and that becomes the new standard. And then the, the kids who are younger than you grow up with an even different standard think of all the things you do with your mobile that your grandma wasn't used to doing, right? Like inputting your pin every time you want to open it up and, and call someone. Um, these all just become standard, like people's practices and habits adapt. Sid's, Sid's basically saying he's becoming a grandma. That's what I'm hearing. My grandma bought Coke for a nickel. So rest, rest in peace, grandma. Drink? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, well, no, not, no, not the drink. Come on. Oh shit. I mean, um, stop. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the, the thing is, right, is like these, th there's this, this web like 2.5 and maybe this is, maybe if you want to find correlations, maybe the correlation is like, okay, the U.S. is building its own blockchains, plural, its own web three. And maybe that, that web three for, for retail and institutions, like you said, Sid, is two factor off on chain where there's so much abstraction away from like a single private key or an MPC, like layers and layers of abstraction stacks of like okay there's the chain then there's someone then there's like an l2 and then there's an l3 and then there's an app and then there's an mpc wallet and then there's a bank and then there's your like 2fa with like your google email and like your your oauth app and uh I, at that point like the blockchain is eight layers down anyways and so it's just a whole new it's just a new web three it's not what we're used to it's not you're not touching eth and buying pepe with your metamask wallet it's just something totally it's a it's basically venmo yeah, I was on uh, Spaces with Sandeep the other day, and I've been on there twice from, from Polygon. And it was like the ZK Syncs and the Optimistic Sync Rollup NFT SEO PP, I don't know, PPIs. And I was like, dude, if we're saying any of this stuff a year from now, literally just kill me, A. But B, we've completely failed. But, but to your point, but like, EVM it has to be abstracted away. It has to be. But the, Z, the ZK EVM is like EVM equivalent. We're like, oh, man. Yeah, I'm but sure. like, who wants to hear that? Like, do you think that that's, 
helping our cause? Can't you just say, like, we're going to make this stuff faster and cheaper and call it a day? Well, but I think they're, they're targeting a different audience, right? Yeah. They're targeting, like, the Scott Dykstra's who are like, ooh, tell me about that Z. They're not targeting the shrapnel player who's, like, buying weapons, NFTs on shrapnel. They're like, bro, I don't give a fuck. Just, like, give me my give me my 2FA wallet. I'm going to own my own weapons, apparently. I'm going to play that game. Sorry, go ahead, Josh. No, I was going to say, look, I mean, I agree with, with everyone. Like, you, you're not going to have mainstream crypto adoption with the current user experience of crypto and how you actually interact with it. Right. I think there are financial products that can operate with the current, you know, UX. Like I actually think the user experience of Uniswap and and other DEXs is, is pretty great. Like it's, it's very easy to get capital on and start interacting with the DeFi application. I actually think DeFi at least DEX is, is getting better. But I think for some of these broader interaction types like remittances or sending money back and forth in a Venmo style or interacting with a game, I think a lot of that is also going to come down to like what Reddit did, right? Reddit built their own wallet for Reddit, right? And I think you 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 will have some yeah. level of native wallets to particular applications. I think the challenge that we have in, as an industry or not as an industry, honestly, it's not, it's not on us, but I think that a layer one has is figuring out like, okay, I am Ethereum, I am Polygon, I'm Avalanche, I'm any of these other, you know, blockchains. How do I get a user in the door and then retain them and get them to use other things on my chain, right? Because if it's so abstracted away like that, to your point earlier, I think, Scott, is how does the value actually accrue to the token, right? Uh, And I'm sure publicly what they'd say, if Gensler was asking, is that we don't care about the token price. And, you know, we just care about the utility of 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 the blockchain. But I think, you know, if, if you're in this layer one race, or I don't know if it's a race or whatever you want to call it, right? You want people not just using you, like, you don't just want shrapnel on Avalanche. You want every transaction to occur on Avalanche. And you want people to be able to bridge money to different games and different activities with, within the chain, right? And so it's kind of these competing priorities where on one hand, I think the layer ones want all that activity to occur on themselves, but I think the consumer just wants an easy experience, right? And, and, and the problem is, what a problem is that we see is like outside of ETH, outside of Bitcoin, all the other, call them all L1s. I don't know if I agree with that term, but other L1s, they actually lose the most, Josh, in that situation where you get these gamers in who buy assets on an avalanche subnet or on one chain and bridge to the other. And you know the, the bridges win. Whoever's taking real transaction fees wins. The L1s lose. Well, I think it's a, like .00001 like cent of gas when it all adds up after the year. They made like nine million dollars the whole year or something. Like for a, for like a you know a, a, a chain with a market cap of let's say like ten billion hypothetically, we'll make like nine million dollars in transaction fees after or gas fees after all of this. The bridges win. Like jump wins. The layer zeros. Like whoever's bridging the assets because they just take crazy transaction fees. The L1s. They just well, some of the L ones keep in mind, in a retail bag. Some of the L ones own their own bridges too, so keep that in there mind. Um, but, but but that doesn't necessarily go to the token holders; that goes to the the legal entity that owns it. But I do think like there are some tokens that are trying to solve for that, like Avalanche. To your point earlier, like with subnets, right? Each subnet needs you know validators, right? And the validators need to purchase a Vox token to actually validate on the subnet. And if you have a large number of things, you know, a large number of subnets that have launched. The theory or the idea is that that's going to take a large number of tokens out of circulation, right? So I think some guys are trying to 
think about these issues, right? But the challenge is, yes, is the token actually worth anything for any of this stuff is obviously. Yeah. I think the, the, the bridges are an interesting one because value, accru you know, it's like, it's like you have a highway. Somebody can't replicate the highway and dump it in the exact same spot. Whereas with bridges between blockchains, you can actually have an infinite number or maybe not an infinite number, but you can have multiple bridges, right? So does it just become a commoditized product where they get competed down on price? Like it's hard to see a lot of these business models not just getting replicated to the point where they're forced to compete, you know, compete in a race to the bottom on price. That's why I, I tend to think that the value will accrue at the application layer rather than this, you know, rather than fat protocol thesis. I agree. At the application layer, I mean, another conversation that I think I was having with Anatoly from Solana, which I think comes out this Sunday, but he kind of, we were talking about whether these things even needed tokens, Josh, right? Do you want the value to accrue to the token, but do you even need one? And he was like, well, you know, like opens, he, he listed off like five companies, OpenSea and such. He's like, none of these have tokens and they're the winners in crypto right now. Like the picks and shovels that don't even have them, like that actually, like Scott, you said, like you're just, you're, they're making money. Like actual. You're, you're describing space and time now. Like space and time is a pick and shovel. It's a massive database for all the blockchain that other protocols run on. Like we, we intend to drop a space and time token, but we need regulatory clarity. In the meantime, we have advisors or, or folks in the industry saying like, do you need a, a token? You just, you, you take transaction. I said what the, what the equivalent of like subscription model, transaction fees, you have revenue, Scott. Do you really need a token? I want to drop a token because I want to build a community because it's fun. Like that's why we're in web three. Like there needs to be a space and time token. The question is how, when do I got to, do I need to move to Aruba to make that happen? Do I need to go like become the mayor of Geneva just to drop a token? Right now, I see no regulatory clarity. I live in Southern Cal, I live in LA. Like I'm not going to go sit in front of the IRS, sit in front of the SAC in front of Gensler and try to like beg him to let me drop a token. We're picks and shovels. We have great revenue. Our business is growing. Advisors are saying, Scott, do you need to drop a token? I want to. Yeah, but right. So, I mean, I, I totally agree with that and get that want and need are two very different things. But I guess the point here is that the tokens are for fun or therefore, let's be honest, instant liquidity, right? It's just a hell of a lot easier for these projects to get a VC if well, they say also, you'll have 10% of your investment back three months, three three weeks from now, right? I also think three there's a world in which... In yeah. which these tokens can accrue value to the token holders. Like yeah. Uniswap has a large number of fees right now. Uniswap tokens aren't accruing. Wow, look at that 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 uh that comment. Sid, your mom. <laughs> I didn't do that. that. Misha, my, my, the producer <laughs> liked that so much that uh, we wanted uh, to know. Sid, come back anytime. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, my my point is like Uniswap accrues a ton of fees, right? I mean, I could I could pull the data up if we want, but but hundreds of millions of dollars if if, if not higher in fees, right? All those fees are currently going to LPs, right? Theoretically, Uniswap could turn on that tap and accrue fees to token holders. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that doesn't that that can't happen within the confines of current regulation, right? Because immediately that becomes a security. So there's actually a world in which, like in the case of Uniswap, the Uniswap token could be worth something, right? It could be worth a significant amount of money. There's a significant transactional volume that occurs on Uniswap, right? But today it's not, just because you know. They can't, you know, they can't turn that tap on because, you know, immediately the SEC would go after them. While we're doing comments, Cloud Casino says, why not add Bitcoin or Satoshis to your game instead of making your own shitcoin? Why, Scott? 
Oh, to me? <laughs> Not too specifically. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, there, there's I clear think, answers to this, by no, the way. But I, I, that, this no, is a Clout's our resident Bitcoin Max. No, no, in, I, in I think chat. it's a fair. I think it's a fair question. I mean, to be fair, we are. I mean, like, there's look. There are new projects coming out that do like shit, like restaking or or something where like space and time doesn't in the, in the short term until there is regulatory clarity until we are ready to drop a token and put it in a maple pool and whatever else like. There are ways that we can leverage Bitcoin and ETH and, and have some about some public chain value accrual that retail can participate. We can build a community while we figure out our token plans. Like that's that that's fair. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, to tokens I think are useful. We're we're just in this this trough of the bear markets. So everybody's saying that they're not, but then as soon as you know the market picks up again, everybody be saying, you know, why don't you have a token? Um, but if you look at what it can do, it's can subsidize customer acquisition cost, can be used for M and A activity. Wow. Polygon, Polygon bought a company using their token. We, you know, we we did similar actually um, when we moved on to Solana, um, and uh, and then you know uh, cap table management for employees. Like if you're if you're an employee at uh, DCG or one of these other large companies, if if you have an exit then you have to sell your equity at like a 50% discount. Um, tokens, you don't have to do that. So it, it, it's just more efficient. And that's purely just because of an inefficiency with illiquidity in private cap tables. So what, you know, tokens unlock that. So they, they do solve problems. It's just to Josh's point, there's a ton of regulatory opaqueness around how they should be treated. And um, what are the consequences of having one? Yeah, I think maybe the inherent challenge there is that in the few cases where people use them properly, you're 100% right, but then 99% of people just take it as an excuse to print some money <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, and make a meme uh, overnight and move on. Guys, I can't believe it's 1030. That's an hour. That was the most fun, entertaining panel. I feel like we should just like do this all the time. And Josh, and maybe invite uh, John from... Uh, yeah, we need, to, we need to bring John on. I'm I'm bringing I'm bringing John on to my podcast next week. Skid, yeah. Sid has been a fantastic guest in the past um, to to talk shit about the markets. That will be a very end. <laughs> There's going to be Friendly. nothing positive discussed for an hour. It's going to be great. We were uh, for for Sid and Scott. It was me, Josh, and John from Blockworks. The uh, he's editor in chief yep. of Blockworks, right? Yep. And we were right, sitting, yeah. having some drinks at Consensus, and we came up with a podcast or show idea called "Talking Shit" and then coins in parentheses, and that was going to be the name <laughs> of our show. But I feel like you guys could uh, talk shit coins with us, and you know, this could it can be bigger than three men. I love it. <laughs> so, guys, listen, everybody, please follow all three of these guys. Uh, they're awesome, Scott. It was nice to meet you. I'm glad You're this is the first time. You're you're literally sure you welcome back anytime. Uh, you know, we, we accept people yeah. who just want to print coins for fun here. Right? We I don't judge. It. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, awesome. Uh, Josh, Sid, as always, everybody Thanks, else, guys. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, it's it's Friday, so we rant about news on Friday. Should be should be a good time. I know Josh had to go later, guys. Everybody, see you tomorrow. Peace, guys. See you Thank guys. you.